All right. Welcome, everyone. Uh, checking in, uh, Rich and Alan, are you guys on the line? Hey, Brian, this is Rich. Hey, Rich. Hey, good morning, Brian. Alan Parker's here as well. Hey, good morning. All right. Well, uh, this is this is the first. We've never done this before. Uh, I don't. I don't have as good of hair, but if Howard Stern can do it, I'm going to do my best. So we're going to give this a whirl. We're going to start with the sauciest of content and uh, specifically the disclosures. And uh, please note that all important disclosures, including personal holdings disclosures and Morgan Stanley disclosures, all appear on the Morgan Stanley public website at www.morganstanley.com forward slash research disclosures. They're also at the registration desk. Some of the statements made today by Zillow may be considered forward-looking. These statements involve a number of risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially. Any forward-looking statements made today by the company are based on assumptions as of today, and Zillow undertakes no obligation to update them. Please refer to Zillow's Form 10-K for discussion of the risk factors that may affect actual results. So we have Rich Barton and Alan Parker dialed in, the, uh, the CEO and the CFO of Zillow. Rich co-founded Zillow and announced his return to the CEO essentially last year. He was uh, previous to last year. He'd been the CEO up until 2010. And then Alan uh, assumed the, the uh, CFO role in 2018, coming from Amazon, where he served as VP of Finance and Amazon Devices, the App Store, as well as Amazon Pay. So uh, thank, you, uh, thank you both for, uh, for dialing in for, uh, for wherever you're dialing in from. How are you guys doing? We're doing, doing great, Brian. Thank you uh, for making accommodations for us like this and giving this a try. I can hear you more clearly than last year when I was sitting on stage right next to you, so maybe there's a, there's a, uh, there's a trend here. But I hope everybody uh, can hear us okay. And I guess I first wanted to, to apologize for not being there in person. Um, as, as you might imagine, uh, Seattle is a little bit ahead of the curve on the coronavirus nervousness uh, scale because we've had some more cases and a couple of deaths in Seattle. So, you know, our, our first concern right now is to make sure we are uh, taking care of our employees um, and, and, and making sure that we have good policies and procedures to make them feel, feel safe. Um, you know, we also, in, in, in a minor way, we don't want to be we don't want to uh, we don't want to be transmitters. We don't want to be getters. Uh, while we try to figure this out too, that's kind of minor, but that, that, that's that's part of it. But I, I guess I do want to close this intro by emphasizing that our lack of being there in person it does not reflect any desire on our part to hide from your questions or from the business itself. Business is really strong, as evidenced by our recent recent quarterly results, which I'm sure will. Uh, we'll talk about. So anyway, I apologize and thank you. Oh, perfect. No, thanks. Uh, we completely understand. Uh, don't worry. We're gonna we're gonna hit you with the same questions if you were uh, sitting next to me. I just you know I I can't see your socks. I know you're always a very well dressed man. So um, where do I want to start? So it's it's been about 12 months or so since you came back to Zillow, Rich. And I guess the the first question is as you sort of sit in your seat today. What have been your, your one or two biggest surprises over the course of the last 12 months? And as you, you sit in investor meetings and you talk to investors, what do you think is really sort of the most misunderstood aspect of the, of the Zillow story? Um, yeah, well, it's been a um, – I put in my, in my script from the conference call a couple of weeks ago that it was a tumultuously remarkable year. All, all of my word friends got a kick out of that. Um, 
it, it, it was a pretty amazing year of transition for the company. Um, and, you know, a, a transition in mindset from a top-of-funnel mindset to a bottom-of-funnel mindset, a, you know, as we move towards the transaction, really innovating on the transaction and replatforming this giant, uh, this giant industry. It's required a lot of cultural change, a lot of personnel change and up-leveling, uh, a, a mission a change and refinement, values, et cetera. And those kinds of things are hard to lead in a big organization. Uh, it doesn't happen very quickly, uh, nor does it happen without pain. But I'm really proud of what we did, and, and, and we were able to do that in the last year while reaccelerating, kind of turning around the, P, the, the, the core or media business, the premier agent business, which lives in our IMT segment, um, getting growth go, really going in that business again and expanding margin at the same time. So I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased with that as well. So while we did that, we also invested a, a uh, made a major investment in this kind of new future business of Zillow offers and grew that in a way that um, is really quite quite extraordinary. The uh, you know going from effectively zero to a um, you know 1.4 billion in revenue in that business in 2019. Um, it's, it's pretty remarkable in opening up all those markets. So I'm proud of the team for, for, for doing that and doing that in a way that had a good eye towards kind of Alan Parker, our CFO's, you know, fitness goals, kind of being, being, you know, being quite mindful of cost because operating businesses need to be mindful of cost in order to gain leverage. So we did all of those things in one year. I'm glad that year is behind us, uh, and we're you know, we're feeling good about where we sit right now. Understood. No, I think that's that's helpful for sort of some of the the big areas that you've you've made traction in. I guess sort of a maybe a little opportunity for some some self grading. Give us a couple examples of areas where, you know, even after a year, you still think are really important to improve in the organization, either from a, a top-line perspective, a user perspective, or an OPEX. Where are sort of the biggest areas for improvement going forward over the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, we've done a – if you think of the, the new business opportunities as kind of a hub-and-spoke opportunity where the hub – of the transaction is Zillow offers when we are actually buying and selling homes and acting as the market maker. You know, we see a really big consumer demand, as you saw with the Bowens, if you heard in that, that, that lead-in with the Bowens. I never used to think that this could be a – the home transaction and moving could be considered something delightful or joyful uh, just because it's so painful <laughs> for all of us. But you can see from the video that actually there is this new way, and it is causing delight and surprise. Um, we, we're on to something big from a consumer perspective there. We believe we can make that, and our target is to make that hub profitable in and of itself and, and gain a nice, attractive return on invested capital there by being the market maker. Um, but then we also think that we have opportunity to hang all these spokes off of the hub with, um, you know, these adjacent businesses with things like mortgage and title and escrow and perhaps moving and, and the, other, the other leads that come off from, like, that, that, that flow from actually owning these, uh, these transactions. We've got those underway, but, you know, I would say I would have liked to see more progress in 
For one, I would I'd highlight I, w I would like to see more progress in our mortgage business uh, in getting that up and running. It's been a difficult uh, uh, mortgage environment for purchased mortgage because the refi business has been so hot, hot, hot that uh, it, it, it's it's uh, a, a, a difficult hiring environment. Uh, in terms of getting the best loan officers, so that's 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 one of the drags. We could we could see some improvement there, but I'm feeling pretty good about our leadership and the traction we're gaining uh, in that business right now. Let me hop back though, and then maybe I'll give Alan a chance to jump in. On um, you said kind of one of are there any misconceptions with your last question, uh, Brian? I, I I think that the the kind of biggest lingering misconception uh, right now about Zillow probably has to do with the Zillow Offers business and not totally, that, that business doesn't really, hasn't really existed before. So trying to gain an understanding of that and, and, and investors thinking that it's a house flipping business um, when what it really is is a market making business. We're not trying to make directional bets on real estate. That is not what we're doing there. We're, we, are, we are transactional, not directional. Um, we're not trying to take advantage of of homeowners who are in difficult uh, positions and make outsized profits at all. We're really actually just trying to provide grease in the gears of the industry, and and w we we think it's working. And we move houses so relatively quickly that that the the, the the overall direction of the market we can price into the dynamic fee that we charge. And so it is not it is not if if, if you could walk away with one thing about Zillow offers. You know, trying to begin to think of this business as a as a, our business here as being a uh, market maker, not uh, not a house flipper. And then maybe I'll turn it over to Alan to to, to talk about um, kind of returns and capital in that business. Yeah. Hey. Uh, good afternoon. You know, what I'd say is another misconception. I think we feel is there's a lot of concerns we talk to investors um, about ZO being a bad business given its lower margins and its higher capital nature. Um, you know, as we look at it uh, and we think about the opportunity of serving our customers better and helping them close transactions, uh, as you heard in the video, you know, while it is a, at our scale, um, economics that we've talked about on a per unit basis of four, uh, per unit basis of four to 500 uh, basis points of profit uh, pre-interest, um, you know, that, that is a lower margin business, but it doesn't account for the higher margin adjacent services that we expect to cross sell with the home transaction, uh, including financing, closing services, um, closing services, et cetera. And so when you put the two together, um, you know, we actually, and the fact that our homes business, while more capital intensive, is a levered business uh, that we currently uh, have bilateral agreements up to 85% loan-to-value that we expect to improve over time, both uh, as longer-term uh, um, asset-backed deals as well as deeper into the, the home value. This can be a quite compelling both return on invested capital and ROE basis if we get it right. And so, again, uh, what I like about the home business is that it gives us the opportunity to marry our high and this homes business and our customers better, and then building these uh, around this hub that can actually generate quite favorable returns on percentage basis, a little more capital that does require optimal 
require leveraging machine learning and AI business, you know, this is, a, I guess, jump off for either one, but Rich, you, know, you mentioned, you know, $1.4 billion of homes revenue in 2019 certainly is, is bigger than, than we thought. You really have kind of scaled the business from a top-line perspective faster than we thought you would. That's a long ways, though, between the, the $1.4 billion and sort of the, the $20 billion revenue target that you've laid out for the next three to five years. So maybe just sort of help us understand how you think about the, the one or two key investments and areas that you have to execute on to scale this business from a billion and a half to 20 billion in the next three to five years. Uh, yeah, Brian, um, you know, the past year has been about planting flags and opening markets and doing that in as, um, you know, in as rationally rapid way as possible for a number of reasons, not the least of which is we think if we can get to a, a national enough-ish footprint that we can begin to bring the power of our customer acquisition, marketing, and branding to bear uh, on, this, on this whole business. Um, you know, not to mention the fact that we think that this, in order for this business to work, it work and work well, it does need to be a scaled at high, uh, high volume business in order for us to get the the economies and the awareness and the fees down and 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 what have you. And so last year was about planting flags and opening markets. We we opened most of our markets in the in the last two quarter, the large majority of our markets in the last two quarters of the year, many of them in the last quarter of last year. Um, uh, and that was our goal to, to, to get that going. And despite moving really, really quickly in opening markets, we still um, were able to far exceed even our, you know, well, certainly our guidance and, and our internal uh, estimates for, for how, how big the business would get. Now we've got the pipe laid. We're going to get the water flowing. We're going to turn to focusing a lot more on getting volume through those markets and increasing depth in those markets and beginning to, to apply the learnings we've, we've gotten from all the signal we've taken in and begin to refine the operations and, and grow the volume. Um, it is a long way, it feels like a long way to 20 billion, uh, a, a $20 billion annual run rate, which was our three to five year guidance uh, for this business. But, but I'll just walk through the math quickly at an average price point of $300,000 a home, which is about our average, $20 billion per year in, in action is about 5,000 homes per month, which would be about 200 homes per market, assuming a kind of a, uh, a static market opening. We've got it towards 26 markets mid-2020. mid, mid And if you assume that 26 markets, we've got 200 homes per market. None of these numbers feel daunting to us. Uh, and, you know, a, a one more framing issue for you, $20 billion would represent only about 1% of the total U.S. residential transaction value. And, you know, I do believe, based on what we're seeing from a consumer signal perspective, that there, there ought to be a lot more than 1% demand for this breakthrough product. So we feel pretty good. Got it. That's, that's helpful with the, the way to think about the, the market rollout, et cetera. 
Um, you know, I guess the, the other part of the homes debate, you know, that, that's the top line story. I think the, the profitability st still comes up a lot in investor discussions, both both the near term and the long term. So maybe just sort of to get into the, the near term a little bit, you know, it looked like the, the per unit economics on homes are still weakening a bit sequentially from 3Q to 4Q in the, in the back half of last year. So I guess maybe, Alan, this is a, this is a question for you. Where, what are the major sources of that incremental weaker leverage in the P&L between renovation costs, holding costs, acquisition, et cetera? And then talk to us about what has to happen qualitatively for the efficiency on those unit economics to improve. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start out by saying, you know, I wouldn't read too much into, uh, you know, a quarter over quarter uh, change in our per unit economics as a trend. Um, you know, we were uh, in Q3, our per unit economics were just about break even pre-interest, and they moved to about negative 48 basis points pre-interest uh, in Q4. Um, but there's a lot of moving parts, and we're actually, you know, continuing to iterate and test across markets as well as adding and expanding. Uh, so we expect some variation, which is why we had initially set the guardrails to be plus or minus 200 basis points per unit um, pre-interest. So, you know, I, I wouldn't call anything a trend yet. Um, we're very much in the test and grow stage, and it's still very early uh, to draw a trend line. We are learning, um, and we saw some of those learnings um, as we brought that back into our feedback loop, uh, improve our resale uh, performance in Q4, which, which uh, was part of the the reason for hitting the 600 uh, million in home sales. Um, but we do believe, getting back to the individual pieces, we believe there's opportunity, you know, across the board. Uh, for Q4, you know, we saw that uh, acquisition costs uh, was about 90% of uh, revenue. Uh, renovation was 4.69%, and that did deteriorate uh, versus the 4.02% in Q3. There's a lot of things we're doing in renovation to test how much we have to do, uh, what adds value to the house, and what are things that we may be spending money on that don't add value to to our, our uh, eventual buyers. And so I think we have a lot of opportunity there. Uh, holding costs um, was relatively flat at about 1.23%, and then selling costs at 4.33% was slightly favorable. Um, so, again, we expect these to move. We, we definitely long-term, you know, have to bring these down to get to our 400 to 500 basis points of profit pre-interest per home before fixed costs and interest. Um, but we, you know, we have ideas. Our focus in 19 was really to expand and grow um, fast. Uh, that does allow for us to learn as we go into 2020. Um, but it also means that we're going into a lot of markets prior to learning a lot from the previous market we opened. Uh, and so, again, I would expect, um, and what we've provided is that the plus or minus 200 basis points is going to continue to be our guardrails. Uh, we expect it to move back and forth. Uh, we have a lot of ideas on how long-term we get there. Um, we're going to be, you know, focused on ensuring that we get to a scale and a size uh, that allows us to leverage some other things like advertising and and a little more leverage on fixed costs around our platform, um, you know, before we try to, to 
to, to do anything that, uh, you know, may slow that down. So uh, we're excited about the fact that we grew as big as we did and launched as many markets as we did um, while staying within those guardrails. And, and, again, we're excited about the opportunity in 2020. You know, the one thing that I, I typically call out is that we continue to share the free unit economics to allow uh, our investors to, to know how we're doing. Um, but I also focus, and, you know, one of our, our goals is also to ensure that on a even a margin basis that we continue to show leverage um, annually on that. And, and, you know, so that, that's one of the metrics that we also look at. It may not be always quarter-over-quarter quarter improvement, but, you know, we finished um, the year at about negative 18% uh, EBITDA margin um, for 2019, but we saw improvement throughout the year going from negative 27% to closing Q4 at negative 14%. Uh, and our guidance uh, has us between negative 12% negative 14% in, you know, Q1. So we continue to focus on that as well, um, and we're excited about the opportunity. Understood. Yeah, you've talked previously about the the two to three percent long-term EBITDA margin target, or the way to think about the the potential on the the home segment. I guess sort of three three questions around that that two to three percent EBITDA margin. The first one is just sort of to kind of to drill back into the the P&L, Alan, of the within that detailed P&L you're giving us every quarter. How do we think about the moving pieces within holding costs, renovation, et cetera, that you need to see to get to that 2 to 3% margin? That's the first one. And the second two, probably a, a jump ball. How do we think about timing? You know, how, many, how many years away are we from being able to get to that type of leverage and scale of 2 to 3%? And third one is, do you need adjacencies like mortgages or title to get there, or can you get to that 2 to 3% margin without the adjacencies? Rich, why don't I take the first and third real quick, and then I'll leave it to you on timing. Um, okay. But again, I believe, and, and just to clarify, the two to three percent EBITDA margin uh, would would translate to the 400 to 500 percent, uh, or 400 to 500 basis points uh, of margin on a per unit home basis, and then uh, reduced for uh, funding fixed costs. Um, and that's the 2 to 3% that you referenced in your question. Um, and so at the per unit uh, economics level, which is the disclosure we provide, um, you know, we believe there's opportunities across the board. We believe there are things we can do uh, to buy the homes better, um, not necessarily, again, trying to be a flipper, as, as Rich mentioned, but just making sure that we are smarter about what we buy, because in order to sell well, we have to buy well. We believe there's uh, lots of room in renovation costs. Uh, we believe some of these resale activities that we're doing are gaining traction, and that's going to allow us to reduce our holding costs. And then as we, you know, um, continue to grow and expand and work with our partner agents, we believe there are some activities that we can reduce the cost of or eliminate or automate that would allow um, us to take those out and reduce the, you know, the selling costs. So, you know, we believe that we have a path uh, at scale to get to that 400 to 500 basis points. And then uh, the fixed cost requires, you know, obviously us building out the platform, uh, which we're investing in now, but then leveraging that fixed cost over the scale of the, 
the, the larger revenue number that we expect over time. Uh, and that's how you get to the two to three percent, um, if that helps. Yep, that's what Do you want to hit the adjacencies or you want me to jump in? Oh, on, yeah. And, on timing? And to, to clarify, on the adjacencies, those are not included in those metrics, right? So mortgages, uh, title and escrow. Uh, title and escrow is, is I'll, I'll just try to clarify, to the extent that we are paying the title and escrow, that shows up in our home acquisition costs and some of our selling costs. So to the extent that we're performing those services, that will show up as a lower cost in the per unit metrics, but another portion of that shows up in what the seller or buyer is paying today to a third party. That would show up as margin accretion uh, to our uh, total business uh, when we start performing those activities. And, and that margin is not included in those per unit economics, nor is mortgage profit or profit from any of the other adjacent. So maybe I'll hit the timing, Brian, and, and say that, look, we, we, in our kind of three to five year, um, you know, guidance that we, that we gave a little while back, we purposely decoupled, we, we, we didn't make a profitability um, assertion on that because we just, we just don't know what, you know, the growth profile is going to look like at that point. Um, and certainly some of it's going to depend on growth. I would, I would say that there's kind of a unit-level profitability that depends on velocity and, and scale, and we're, and we're working on that uh, really, really hard and taking all of these, these learnings into the machine and into humans and translating that into leverage, and we, got a lot of, we believe we've got a lot of upside there. If you step back from an overall P&L perspective right now, though, you know, I think we said this on the call. We are basically willing to effectively self-fund this big new option on the new businesses that we're getting into with the EBITDA profit from our established um, media legion businesses. That's kind of what we didn't give guidance on, on the company overall for the year, but I think we basically said, look, we're willing to take Last year, I think it was 300 million or so of EBITDA profit from our IMT businesses. Am I getting that right, Alan? It was 304. Okay, so 304 million of profit, uh, and we took the bulk of that. Not all of that. We took the bulk of that and invested it in building these, you know, uh, new businesses, laying the groundwork for these new businesses in the future that we think are going to be you know, quite profitable and successful in the long term. And that is kind of how, that is our mindset right now for tw the way we're thinking about 2020 uh, from an overall profitability perspective. We think it's a reasonable reasonable constraint for ourselves um, given what we see as the opportunity to kind of target break-even-ish as well. We'll see how it works out and we'll see how the competitive uh, uh, environment changes, if so. We'll see what kind of leverage we're able to get on these cost items and line items, how soon, but that's kind of the, the broad way I've been thinking about it. Understood. Last one on homes. Rich, you mentioned how mortgages is one area where, in, in your mind, you, know, you, you could have executed a little better last year. So maybe talk to us about the, the one or two key investment areas in mortgages. It sounds like it, it could be heads. And then how, how do we think about sort of timing of integrating that into the platform? Is that a, is that a 2020 
event, or is it more take a couple of years to sort of really drive material mortgage traction with the business? Yeah, it's not just a heads thing, Brian. It was also a tech thing. Um, you know, we bought a little uh, mortgage originator, Maloa, M-L-O-A, Mortgage Lenders of America in Kansas City, uh, as a way to kind of get us in from a regulatory perspective, kind of out of the out of the gates fast. Um, and get us into the business. We underestimated our ability to bring, you know, technology to, quickly to this complex manual process that's, that's kind of fraught with regulation. And so we, we didn't do the best job um, putting new tech under this, under this old platform as quickly as we wanted. Uh, we're feeling better about that now. But that was a little slower than we expected, and then the refi market hit us hot, and that caused some some um, some people issues. Um, we have now turned over leadership there almost completely, and um, are guardedly optimistic. I'm feeling like the tires are are actually just beginning to really bite. Job number one is to build a digital mortgage that can integrate into the Zillow offers transaction to give our customers who are demanding an integrated product product experience a, you know, cl as close to a one-click transaction experience as they can. So that's job number one. Um, I'm pleased with where, you know, where we, where we sit there. Job number two, once we get that going, will be to figure out how we can distribute that new digital product via our traditional distribution channels being the premier agent channel. Uh, and that should be a, a, a interesting you know, interesting optionality on a, on, a, on a new business for us there as well. But that's the, that's the sequence we're looking at it in. We're, we're, you know, initially wanting to make it work with, with Zio first. Um, I don't know what our guidance, I think we're, we're guiding mortgages just for a quarter uh, right now while we are, you know, it's most, mostly focused on the Zillow offers business and it's, it's hard for us to go beyond a quarter because that business is, is growing and changing so quickly. Um, and so um, that's kind of the time frame where we are, you know, we're talking about the mortgages in right now, Brian. That's helpful. You know, the, the other piece of the incremental potential revenue stream that's sort of, I think it's, it's come up a, last, a lot over the last few years, sort of this, uh, this white elephant of the, the seller lead opportunity. So maybe asking the same question about seller leads, where are you now from a, a technology perspective and integrating it into the flow? And then when do you sort of see yourself really scaling that and pushing that out to more and more agents across the U.S.? Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the um, adjacent opportunities that come from us doing these transactions and owning these homes, these homes and, and, and Zillow offers and having all of this foot traffic come through virtually on the website and then physically through, uh, through the homes themselves creates a cascade of, of lead opportunities for us, uh, of which one of them is uh, seller leads to people who raise their hands for Zillow offers who don't, we don't end up buying, bidding on or buying their homes. Um, that's actually a fairly small N right now. Uh, so we wouldn't expect there to be a, a, a ton there. Uh, even though it's a small N, we have not actually figured out exactly what the right menu, how to present that menu of options to the seller to show them that we're indifferent as to how we just want to help them get over the bridge. We want to help them get into the new house and unlock life's next chapter. That's what I mean, mission, 
Um, and we, uh, we want to set things up so that we're agnostic as to, as to uh, what path they take to get to the new home, whether or not it's the express lane with Zillow offers or it's, it's the more traditional lane with, a, uh, with an agent. We haven't quite figured out how to put that offering together, but we're working with our partners to do that, and we're, and we're making progress. Um, but we do have all these other lead opportunities that come from, from owning these homes as well, and we are very excited to uh, be in the transaction in such a real way for the first time to be able to begin to take advantage of these things. And I guess I'd say one more thing, and that is the, all of the software that we are writing to streamline our Zillow offers process, we are now realizing that a bunch of that transaction-oriented thinking is, is and will be very interesting for our core IMT media business as well. So if we write software to enable a 3D walkthrough captured by your iPhone in our Zillow offers homes, we ought to be able to offer that same thing to our partners in our traditional channel. Likewise, you know, hands-free touring. Uh, likewise, you know, figuring out how to nurture a potential lead into a transaction. So we are uh, – a surprising thing from our Zillow offers experience is just how applicable a lot of the software and learnings that we're getting from the Zillow offers side is to our traditional business. Yeah, and Rich, I would just add again, because I had mentioned it in the misconceptions, that, you know, seller leads along with these other adjacencies are part of our thesis for our total company being a, uh, our Zillow offers driving a, you know, very um, positive kind of ROIC or ROE type business. So they are extremely important. It's just really important that we get homes right first in order to be able to turn the crank and leverage things and, and make that in that Rich mentioned, the number of opportunities to interact uh, much larger. And, and so our focus uh, in 19 and, you know, even as we go to 20, is going to be on making sure we get the homes, the ZO part right. Uh, but we, in our long-term thesis, these are all extremely important. Let me add one, let me add one thing before the next question, Brian, as well, and that is that sure. In my, in my mind, I have these kind of two interlocking flywheels going, one being our traditional PA business, and we can talk about that, and then another being our, our Zillow offers business. And they're interesting in that I, I talked about the leads and the learning spinning out of and being a byproduct of the ZO flywheel that we're just getting going, feeding our IMT premier agent flywheel. But it probably goes without saying, but we're in such a strong position with these transaction businesses because our customer acquisition costs for those businesses are effectively zero because we get 175 million plus unique users a month coming to Zillow and our other brands and, and apps and websites. And so we're able to siphon off in a very cost-effective way the people that are interested in products like Zillow offers, and that gives us a major competitive advantage. That's helpful. Yeah, to maybe sort of dive into the uh, the the other uh, the other half of the flywheel in your, in your in your mind, Rich, of you know the the core sort of IMTPA business. You know, Flex has been one of the the big changes that's happened over the the course of the last year or so. You've rolled out to a handful of markets now. You know, we our our rough monkey math shows that it looks like Flex 
could increase your per unit economics in some cases, you know, 1.3 to 1.5 times more. We're going to make more per transaction in the flex world eventually. I guess so the question is, one, what, what's your reaction to that math? And then secondly, if, if that is the case, how do you sort of communicate and manage that with your agents if you're taking a higher percentage cut of every home sold? Um, okay, monkey math, like it. Um, Alan, you want to start? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, I would start. You can kick in with, you know, what yeah. our real focus here is. You know, Flex is, is one of many uh, continuing evolutions to our business model and offerings that we're making with the intent of driving improved conversion, meaning more of our consumers who come to our site and want to close a transaction, we close more of those. So, you know, I, I actually look at it not so much uh, on what is Flex do in terms of our take for a particular transaction. I think Flex is a vehicle that's going to allow us to work with our partner agents uh, and these, some of these high-performing teams to improve conversion, meaning getting more of our consumers into the transaction they want to close. That's going to generate a higher dollar pool through our system, of which we're going to benefit as well as our partner agents, and that is going to drive a higher revenue yield per lead. Um, and I look at it kind of that way versus are we getting a bigger take per transaction? Uh, and so we are very excited about this customer-centric approach that we've moved towards as we move deeper into the transaction. We have seen, um, even with our current MVP business, a, a, an improvement in customer satisfaction scores. Uh, we've seen an improvement in conversion. Um, and, and those two things are going to create more transactions through our system, which is going to grow revenue and revenue per lead. Um, you know, so I, I, I'm not going to actually, I guess, uh, say anything about the monkey map. Uh, we do believe that we have a lot of opportunity, given the traffic that Rich mentioned earlier, to improve the number of transactions through improving conversion and the experience. Um, Flex is one of those that allows us to direct more leads to high-performing agents that uh, provide great customer satisfaction and know how to close deals and get our customers into the homes they love. Rich, I don't know what you want to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the better in your question is, or at least the second part, Brian, is a little bit of a kind of a, you know, a churn, a churn kind of thinking and, and, and watching churn and are you upsetting your current partners because you're trying to take increase your take rate uh, or what have you or lower their ROI. I, 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 look, we're really beginning to think about this as, a uh, business model optimization question, uh, you know, problem and opportunity. Um, we've got these different ways we can monetize. Our focus on the transaction, which resulted from our rollout, our testing rollout of Flex, um, really got us focused on those agents and agent teams that can convert. Okay, and those that can convert turns out the, the customers are happier, too, because they want to move. And so their customer satisfaction goes up. Uh, and so it's this focus on conversion and what we're kind of thinking of as these, you know, high-performing partners uh, is what we've been, what we've been talking about. Uh, has, has, uh, we've seen benefits on, on focusing on high-performing partners, regardless of whether we're using a, a post-pay flex business model or a 
prepay auction-based, you know, MV market-based pricing uh, uh, model. So it's it's goodness across the board. We'll we'll continue to innovate on this, um, but we're moving from a world world where we're kind of we're less takers here of money than we are givers of of leads and and customers and uh, to and only to those agents that we know are going to be good at converting those customers into transactions, which, of course, will provide more dollars for all of us. I know we're up against the clock. There's, there's one more I just have to ask. I think it's important for the, the overall story because, Rich, you sort of mentioned how the, the core IMT PA business is sort of the, the cash cow that is sort of fueling homes investment. And, Alan, one of the things that you've really brought is a new discipline. You know, I think the core margins were up almost 400 basis points last year. I guess just sort of talk to us a little bit about how early are you in this, this cost-cutting process in the core, and where do you sort of see still the, the biggest areas for low-hanging fruit from a cost-cutting or efficiency perspective in the core IMT business? Yeah, Rich, I'll start and then add, um, yeah, I you know, we grew margins. We were able to expand margins at 381 basis points in 2019. Um, our full-year guidance for IMT would reflect at the midpoint another 350 basis points of expansion. Um, you know, what I really like about where we are at IMT and, and the performance in 2019, Rich mentioned it, was we were able to reaccelerate growth within the premier agent business while uh, expanding margins. You know, I, I think you say cost-cutting, you know, I, I think it's just cost-focused is how I would describe it. Um, you know, it comes from a variety of ways. Um, as, as I've worked with the teams and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of positive reception to us just looking at prioritization. Um, you know, so a lot of the opportunity that we, we uh, banked in 2019 and that we believe will continue to accrete in 2020 is around ensuring we have our teams working on the most important things and those teams um, where, you know, maybe we were working on things that weren't as critical to our success, we're able to, to reprioritize into the things that, that are driving growth. Um, I think it's important to, to comment that we are investing. Um, connections is an example. Um, we are uh, investing in our Connections team who interact with our customers and ensure they get a live transfer to agents, which we believe is improving customer sat and conversion. Um, and we are investing, we invested heavily in that in, in 19 and we'll continue to increase that investment in 2020. Um, other things we're looking at, you know, are, are some basic blocking and tackling. We have an internal, internal initiative we call Airstream, um, where we, you know, just go out and do the basic blocking and tackling around our discretionary spend. Are we, negotiating fairly and correctly. Um, are we getting the benefit of the growth that we provide our vendors? Uh, we're looking a lot at uh, demand management um, and ensuring that, you know, every manager and, and every person uh, has a transparent look at, at what we're spending on and why and, and where it makes sense. And, and then we're moving to a lot of analysis. Uh, marketing would be an example of, of spending that marginal dollar, that nth dollar, that next dollar, to get what is the marginal or incremental return on that, not average. Because if you spend to an average, you're always going to overspend. So I, I think it's a lot of basic blocking and tackling, 
and um, and just a lot of focus, and the teams are excited. We have a lot of opportunity, we believe, to grow. Um, you know, our the long-term or mid-term guidance, three to five-year guidance we provided, our targets we provided last um, February, we're getting to a 30% IMT EBITDA margin. Um, you know, we'll be fairly close, or at least our guidance assumes we're, we're making a lot of progress there in the first two years. So, you know, I come from a, an area or a, a company where, you know, you always look to continually improve and, and continue to gain leverage. Uh, I believe IMT has an opportunity to, to continue to grow. We can get leverage on that growth and we continue to look for areas to, to not spend money that we may have been spending money on in the past. It's just not driving that return that we think is significant significant enough to spend the money on. Great. All right, with that, the uh, the red lights are flashing. Rich and Alan, thank you so much for dialing in. We really appreciate having you here. Yeah, we're sorry. Thank you, Brian, and thank you, everybody. We're sorry we're not there in person, but we will. We hope to see you soon. Take care. Thanks, thank Brian. you. Thanks.